I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Block. On this Sunday, leaders from the G7 industrial nations meet in France. High on their agenda, what to do about China. Is it time for a global diplomatic approach? Then, as protests in Hong Kong intensify and with the Chinese military on alert, Beijing detains an employee of the British consulate. Why? The British High Commissioner is here with more on that and to explain why the UK stripped Jihadi Jack of his citizenship, making him Canada's problem. And threats, bullying and intimidation. Students on campuses across Canada say they are subject to surveillance and intimidation if they speak out against China. We'll find out who is being targeted and why. As the trade war between China and the U.S. heats up with China's recent announcement of a new $75 billion tariff on U.S. goods, the Canadian consulate in Hong Kong has suspended work travel to China for local staff. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was in Ottawa just a few days ago, and he assured Prime Minister Justin Trudeau the American government will continue to pressure China to release two Canadians who have been detained for more than eight months now. So what exactly is the U.S. doing to to help free Canadians, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor amid its own economic battle with China. Joining me now is Morgan Ortega, spokesperson for the U.S. Department of State. Welcome to the show, Morgan. Thank you for having me. Uh, always a pleasure when we get a chance to speak to Americans about Canada-U.S. relations. And, of course, the Secretary of State was here in Ottawa speaking with our Prime Minister just a couple of days ago. He was reassuring Canadians that China and the issue of the two detained Canadians is at the top of the agenda for the American government. Can you tell us exactly what the United States is doing to try to put pressure on China to see those Canadians released? Yeah, so first of all, I was with the secretary in Ottawa. It was uh, lovely to be back. I love being in Canada. Um, we have such a close relationship um, with the Canadians on uh, not just uh, political, but on economic areas, on military areas. It's one of the things that I always glean from our meetings when the secretary is, is meeting with the foreign minister and with the prime minister, of course, is just the number of areas around the world in which uh, that we work together, what, what a special and close relationship that it truly is. Um, as it relates to China, I think the secretary was very clear that this is an incredibly important topic because what we're talking about is, as it relates to the two detained Canadians is the rule of law. And this has ramifications not just for Canada, but this has ramifications for, for countries around the world. Clearly, uh, the Chinese see an opportunity w when they can find it uh, to arbitrarily detain people, to, to beat up on countries that they may perceive to be uh, weaker, uh, maybe in their, in their estimate. And so what's incredibly important for America is that we're standing up for our allies, that we're standing up for our friends, but most importantly, that we're standing up for international norms and for the rule of law. And that's something that we fight for every day and will continue to do so. Does that extend, Morgan, beyond just words, beyond just raising it? Does there have to be a consequence for China to deter them from doing this kind of thing now and in the future? I think that there's a lot that happens behind the scenes. There's only so much that we can, of course, um, preview. And, and, you know, it's interesting. Some people, sometimes when people ask me, well, well, what is the administration going to do beyond words? And I have to remind people that here at the State Department, uh, what we do in our embassies around the world um, as, as it relates to international relations is advocate uh, for our position. And so when we are conducting diplomacy, that is, that is the work of the, of the State Department. And that is the work of, of enforcing the rule of law. And that comes in various 
various ways of, of pressuring, of, of exposing things. It's important for us. Words are important. When you say just words, let me just challenge you on that, on, on that for a second because words are important. It's important to shine sunlight on the aggressive uh, behavior uh, of the Chinese, of the Communist Party of China. You know, there are, listen, there are many American companies, there are many Americans that go to China every day, right? And, there's, and there are companies that do, American companies that do business there. There's a number of issues like related to North Korea, for example, where we work very closely with the Chinese. But words are important and shining light on bad behavior is important because you have to call that out and name it and shame it when it happens. Morgan, one of the things that the United States has been calling for is for countries that have had foreign fighters fighting with ISIS to repatriate them and bring them home. One of the challenges we've had with that in Canada is the ability to prosecute them. Our justice system requires a certain level of evidence that hasn't been there in some cases, and as a result, we've had literally dozens of these fighters who allegedly were involved with ISIS come home and not face charges. One when he mm -hmm. faced charges only faced four months in jail. Has the United States considered that bringing these people back to Western countries could could pose a national security risk if they can't be prosecuted. We certainly have, but we would also say that the situation um, is also clearly untenable, and that's why individual countries are going to have to deal with this. We've brought, in, oh, excuse me, we've brought a number uh, of these uh, uh, people back to the United States, where they're in our judicial system being prosecuted as well. And so, no matter what country it is, whether it's Canada, whether it's Europeans, wishing this problem away or keeping them where they are now is not something that can be sustainable for the long run. And so that's why we're encouraging countries uh, to think about this. This is one of those very hard problems that's not going away and not dealing with it is not going to stop the, the issue from remaining. It's certainly a topic of hot debate here in Canada, but I imagine one of the concerns for the United States might be that if these ISIS fighters are brought home to Canada and our justice system is not able to effectively prosecute them, are you worried they could cross the border into the United States? Well, that's one of the reasons why one of the number one priorities of this president uh, is border security, of course. But also say, you know, I, I can't speak to your judicial system um, and how your government is going to, to deal with this issue. But I would say that every government, including ours, are going to have to uh, continue to, to find out ways to prosecute these people. Um, you're, we're going to have to work with our European allies. I think it's going to take all nations coming together to find the appropriate solution. But I think that the president um, and the secretary have clearly, you know, laid out that they don't think that the status quo is, is something that can continue. Turning to Venezuela, a place where Canada and the United States have had similar policies in mm -hmm. terms of concern and recognizing the opposition becoming the official mm -hmm. government, is there a red line there for the United States? I know that President Trump has said that all options remain on the table. At what point does the current containment policy become insufficient and is there a willingness to go beyond that into military intervention? Well, listen, I won't speak or preview uh, what options the president will, will or will not take. He has said that all options are on the table, and, and so therefore I would take him at his word. But I'd say the thing that we are focused here at the State Department and what the secretary, Secretary Pompeo, speaks with uh, your foreign minister about quite regularly is how we restore democracy to Venezuela. That's what is incredibly important here and that we have to, have to remember is that the Venezuelan people have had their democracy stolen from them. You have a, a former and ill 
illeg illegitimate person, Maduro, um, who's still claiming some remnants of power. Uh, and we will use all forces uh, that we have at our disposal to solve this peacefully. That is the goal of the State Department, to return democracy to Venezuela and to solve this peacefully. And then the president can look at a variety of options um, that he may have. And of course, one of the things that I'm very encouraged by is the support of interim president Juan Guaido, what he's received from the Lima group, from OAS, from Canada, from the United States. Um, and that regional support and, and really that global support from nations around the world uh, for interim president Juan Guaido is so important because that is the first step to get towards real and meaningful elections and to restoring democracy in Venezuela. And nothing is more important than that goal. Morgan, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Last week, You're an employee to the for West the British Block. consulate we'll in right Hong Kong was detained break. in China. The UK announced its support for Canada last December, shortly after two Canadian citizens were suddenly detained by Beijing. All of this comes as Britain announces it is stripping Jack Letts, better known to many at home as Jihadi Jack, of his British citizenship for moving to Syria and joining ISIS, making him now Canada's problem, since Jihadi Jack has dual citizenship and wants to come here to Canada now instead. Lots to discuss. Joining me now to do that is Susan Lejeune-Dalgerzek, the British High Commissioner to Canada. Welcome to the show, High Commissioner. Thank you very much for having me. Let's start with Jihadi Jack, because a lot of Canadians reacted to this. He's someone who's barely been to Canada. He grew up in Britain, and yet the British government has decided to strip him of his citizenship. Why did your government take that decision? They took the decision after a lot of careful thought um, and on evidence that came from a variety of sources, uh, which uh, led them to the conclusion that he was a threat to national security. Um, this is a, uh, a provision which is uh, available to the British government uh, in these circumstances, um, and that is why they have done it. You can imagine if he's a threat to national security, why the Canadian government is reacting the way that they are now that he falls into Canada's hands. Did you warn the Canadians this was coming? Because they seemed fairly upset when the news came out. Well, I can understand why they were upset uh, when the news came out. Um, and uh, my, uh, my position is that I'm not allowed to comment on an individual case. I can talk about the case in general and why we do it. Um, but you know, we work very closely with the Canadians on all sorts of issues, including issues related to national security. So um, we have a close relationship and, and, and a very um, uh, frank relationship with them. Um, but more than that, I can't comment on this particular case, I'm afraid. There was a serious debate here in Canada about whether or not to strip people who had dual or multiple citizenships of it during the last election. The Conservatives wanted to be able to do that. The Liberals were against it. Obviously, they won government. So Canada doesn't strip citizenship. Some have said it creates a dangerous precedent if you start taking people's citizenship away. What do you make of that argument? Uh, I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it is a very, very tough uh, measure to take. Um, and I think it's only taken in, in, in circumstances where we are absolutely clear uh, of the uh, danger to the UK and also where the person has another citizenship. Um, I, I, I think there are um, understandable um, uh, concerns about it. But I think in this case, uh, the government's been very clear about why it was done to Jack Letts. I want to change gears and take a look at what's happening in Hong Kong and, of course, the British consular employee who's been detained in China. The Chinese are saying officially that it was for solicitation of prostitution. Do you believe that to be the reason why he was detained? I think it's very difficult to know why he's been detained, partly because we've not had any contact with him since he was detained by the Chinese. They've now said they're going to detain him for 15 days. Um, they have said why uh, they are doing that. And I think without speaking to him, it's very difficult for us to know exactly what has happened and why. 
why, but we are extremely concerned about his detention. And um, we have spoken to the Chinese authorities in Beijing um, and in Hong Kong, and the authorities in Hong Kong, and uh, the Foreign Secretary will undoubtedly be talking about this with his uh, counterparts when he's in Biarritz over the weekend. Is it possible that this is connected to Britain's support for Canada and the case of the two Canadian citizens who've been detained? Um, I don't think you can link it directly, um, but I think it is part of a, uh, a wider pattern of behaviour, um, and I think it's much more likely that in this case it is uh, connected with what's been happening in Hong Kong with the uh, pro-democracy protests and the protests uh, which have been taking place over the last few months. Obviously, the British have a particular interest in Hong Kong. A long history there, those protests have been growing more dramatic. They've been growing in the number of clashes with police forces. There's reports that there's satellite imagery that shows the Chinese military very close by. How serious do you think that situation is? Because in the past, we've seen clashes, but then it's gone quiet fairly quickly. That's not the case here. We're into almost three months of these protests. Well, I think it is, a, it is a very, very tense situation, and it is one which we are obviously looking at very carefully, uh, partly because there are so many uh, British citizens living in Hong Kong, and I know there are many, many people with Canadian passports too, but also because uh, we have a, an international treaty that we signed with uh, China, um, which runs until 2047 and we are counting on China to abide by the provisions of that agreement and to allow peaceful protest, which is allowed under local law, and to allow the Hong Kong authorities to sort out the, the, the situation themselves um, and in a peaceful way. I mean, the way to resolve this is through dialogue. It's not through violence or threats of violence. Do you think that there's a red line here for when the international community becomes more direct in their confrontation with China? You have... Your, the, the citizen from Hong Kong detained. You have the Canadian citizens who have been detained. You have the military there. You have, as you're saying, they're violating the agreement that they made. Um, and yet there seems to be no real consequence for any of that. I think uh, we um, we have to uh, make sure that whatever we do does not inflame the situation further. So I think we have to be uh, very uh, diplomatic, obviously, but also very measured in our responses, and we don't make things worse. But I think on uh, at the same time we need to make it very clear when we are deeply concerned about what's been been happening, and uh, to make it very clear too that if if there are. Uh, if there's a more violent reaction from whoever to what's been going on, then there will be consequences. Well, and there has been concern. It, there could be another Tiananmen Square. I think that's one of the things that people uh, have mentioned. Um, I don't believe that the Chinese government is ready to do that because they have signed up to an agreement. But uh, I think we all have to bear in mind that things can change very quickly. How closely are you working with your Canadian counterparts on this China file right now, not just with Hong Kong, but also with the detention of citizens? As closely as we possibly can. There are regular meetings uh, which look at both uh, our communities in Hong Kong, but also the political situation. It was on the table when the Foreign Secretary met Christian Freeland in, in Toronto two weeks ago, and it's, I know it's right at the top of the list of things that the Prime Minister will be talking to your Prime Minister about in Biarritz over the weekend. What more do you think the global community can do on this file? Um, I think it's very difficult to uh, to sort of hypothesize about things that might happen in the future, but I think the most important thing is to maintain a united front and not allow anybody to sort of divide us and, and split us up. So saying the same thing consistently and pre pre presenting a united front to in the face of these provocations is really, really important. Hi, Commissioner. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
in cities across Canada last weekend. Supporters for democracy in Hong Kong found themselves facing off against those who support Beijing. China's influence around the globe is increasing, and here in Canada, university campuses across the country have seen a rise in students being targeted if they speak out against Chinese policies. Who is targeting these students, and is the Canadian government doing enough to protect them on campus? Joining me now from Toronto is Chimmy Lamo. Chimmy, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Dishley, of course. Chimmy, earlier this year you ran for student council president at the University of Toronto. Can you walk us through what happened when you started to campaign? Mm -hmm. So while I was a candidate, uh, somehow the international Chinese community came to find out that I was running for the elections. But to be specific, it was more like a Tibetan running for the campaign. And so when they found out, um, they immediately released a petition online uh, against me. In addition to that, they took it on social media and they started giving me comments in the thousands uh, from rape threats to death threats, uh, not only to me, but my family members. Um, and soon I realized that, you know, these threats weren't just against me. There was a pattern. There's a pattern in these sort of comments. Uh, everything was talking about Tibet and China. So then I even posted a comment uh, or Instagram story saying, is this hate from China? And then a person DM'd me and said, no, I'm in Toronto. So then I knew that, you know, this is something bigger than just me and my elections. Um, soon that, you know, just escalated to the thousands and thousands and then now escalated to a police case. Uh, and I've been receiving messages of hate, but also love and support from all across the world since then. So you believe this is because you're of Tibetan origin. Do you believe that the government in Beijing is behind the comments and the threats that you've received? Yes, I do. This, it is my opinion. I do not have proof for it. But during the same time, McMaster University, there was an incident. Uh, in addition to that, we have a lot of other proof. Like right here in Toronto, there was the Confucius Institute. In many universities and academic institutions across North America and the world, there's Confucius Institutes that has been proven to have relationship with the Chinese government to um, sell out their propaganda. How widespread do you think this phenomenon is of Chinese government trying to intimidate people who are here in Canada, who are students on university campuses, if they're representing interests that the Chinese state does not support? Mm -hmm. It's alive and well, and it's creeping on us in every corner. Um, a prime example is my case. But not only that, you know, many years ago, a student at Brock University was not allowed to bring her Tibetan flag to her international student festival. And then again, we had emails that said that it, it went back to the Confucius Institute that happened to be a funder at that academic institution. So it is here, uh, but not only at an sort of individual level, but even at a larger global scale, you see that Canada just recently released a joint statement with the United, uh, European Union um, calling for the freedom of assembly in Hong Kong. And you, you saw the Chinese embassy actually give out a warning to Canada to not meddle into their uh, uh, internal affairs. There was also a, a former Ontario cabinet minister, Michael Chan. Uh, he was, in fact, the trade minister for Ontario under the Liberal government. He appeared at one of these pro-Beijing rallies. Are you concerned that there are people who've been elected by Canadians to represent them here who may, in fact, be being influenced by Beijing? And I'm curious to know what your reaction is to his appearance at that rally. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely concerned because... These are the folks that are actually, you know, implementing the propaganda and actually amplifying the propaganda that the Chinese state is trying to control. A uh, prime example is, you know, in 
Canada, there was another association, a Tibetan association that was created, um, calling itself the Tibetan Association of Ontario, but we're the Tibetans here in Ontario. And it turns out the Chinese um, officials and MPPs were actually present at the celebration, uh, recognizing this sort of fake Tibetan organization that didn't have as many Tibetans as the real Tibetan community. Do you feel safer or do you feel that you're still being threatened at this time? Mm -hmm. Time to time, I do get messages on my social media still. Um, I was recommended by the police to turn off my social media and go sort of silent. But how can I do that when I'm the student union president? Um, so duty calls and I'm here at work uh, every day, 9 to 5. After this, I'll be there. Um, and physically, no, I don't feel safe. Um, but emotionally and mentally, China can't harm me. But no one can when your mind is set. <laughs> but, but physically, you think there may be a threat to you? Yes. Uh, so some of the threats that I've received are, quote unquote, um, if I see you, I'll punch you. The bullet that's made for you is already made in China. Um, and then there are also rape threats and then things like your mother's dead. Um, and so these comments have already been given to me directly. Um, and it's been on my social media. It still probably is. And these are actually not just anonymous trolls. There some of them are actually students from my own university. Do you think that Canadian universities and Canadian police and the Canadian government are doing enough to deal with this situation? No, I don't think so. I think there is so much more that we can do. Um, as an, on an individual basis, everyone can raise awareness and be part of the movement, I for Hong Kong, hashtag. Um, or within the institutions, I think they can make a bigger stance. Chinese international students are one of the biggest cash cows for, inter uh, for universities and uh, academic institutions. It's time that we make a stance and let them know that, you know, their human rights record does not reflect um, international standards. And that's why we will have sanctions being placed to m ensure that this common relationship is continued. Jimmy, thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Mercedes. That's our show for today. Thanks for watching. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And for the latest news, go to our website, thewestblock.ca. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for The West Block. Have a great week.